Hello and welcome to the Money Talk podcast. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, we're taking the pulse of markets, which, like the rest of us, have been struggling to digest the scenes coming in from Ukraine and Russia's ongoing invasion there. The economic costs are secondary, of course, to the human tragedy caused by the war, but they are mounting nonetheless, and we'll do our best to take stock of them today. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us, or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. The world is coming to terms with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the reality that no easy end to the fighting appears in sight. Worries about what happens next are focused, of course, on the danger facing people in Ukraine and about the likely geopolitical consequences of Russia's action. But they are also being reflected by financial markets where the damage has been deep and immediate. What can we glean from the market's reaction about the likely economic costs of the war, both in the short and the long term? To help answer that, I'm joined by Tom Stevenson, Investment Director here at Fidelity. Tom, welcome. Um, let's say at the start, shall we, that uh, all these economic and market reactions to this news that we're going to come on to discuss, they do, of course, come a distant second to the concern we all feel for those caught by the fighting. Um, it's also true, though, that economic factors form part of the backdrop to this war, and they're central to the international response to Russia's action. And I guess they're, they're going to be crucial to how the rest of the world is affected by it in the in the weeks and the months ahead. That all said, Tom, why don't we start with a summation, if we can, of the market's reactions to this news over the past week or so? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Ed, and, and I agree with everything that that you've uh, just said there about the, the the relative priorities of of all of this. But um, I, I think I think the first thing to say is that 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 markets were were actually taken by surprise by by what happened last week. I mean, obviously, you know, we've been talking about the build up uh, for weeks, but I think right up until the invasion on Thursday morning last week, uh, I think the expectation among many people was that the conflict could be avoided. And and when it wasn't, I think there was a pretty rapid recalibration uh, of uh, the situation in investors' minds. Um, and the response was pretty much what you would expect on, on, on day one. You know, there were some heavy falls in stock markets, uh, commodity prices uh, uh, went sharply higher. There was a there was a, a move towards uh, safe havens, uh, things like uh, gold um, uh, and the US uh, dollar. So, you know, I think the initial reaction, reaction was, was, was what you would expect. I think one of the key drivers uh, of in, in just the, you know, the few trading days that we've had uh, since this all began, I think one of the key drivers has been expectations about the West's response in terms of economic and financial sanctions. And so on Friday, when we had the first uh, uh, intimation of what those sanctions might look like, and the feeling was that they were going to be fairly contained and um, uh, and not affect the key sort of energy markets in particular, I think that the, the, the markets reacted with some relief. And that's why we got this big rally in markets on Friday. Then over the weekend, of course, uh, the, uh, the the sanctions tightened somewhat. We had talk of of uh, excluding Russia from the the SWIFT banking payment system, uh, and that started to look a bit more serious for the for the global economy. And and sentiment soured somewhat on Monday. So very volatile at the moment. You know, slightly confused. Um, uh, investors are, are are sort of you know attempting to catch up with the reality of, of what's happening and to and to make. Uh, sense of it, I, so I guess that's that's normal. That's what happens in these kinds of situations. There's a there's a there's a period of confusion at the beginning, and then things settle down a little bit. 
Yeah, it, it feels like we're not quite through that first period yet. I think we're still sort of digesting, as I, as I say. You know, you've, you, you talk about some of the uh, actions there that were uh, taken that target uh, Russia's economy directly. We've seen big um, effects in, in various measures within that stock market crash in, in Russia, a genuine crash there, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and uh, all sorts of... Um, you know, consequent effects on on currency and central bank action. That's going to be seismic, isn't it, for Russia's economy? But but yeah. more widely than that, Tom. You know, what can we say about about global markets? Obviously, there's been an effect on the stock market, but you've also written that actually in other measures, say looking at uh, yields in the bond market, we're not in full scale panic mode yet, are we? we the, the markets haven't gone there yet no and 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 just before we get on to that let me let me just sort of uh you know just wrap up a bit on what you've just been talking about there the 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 different the difference in the in the in the reaction to to markets outside russia and inside russia and clearly you know the biggest impact of of this has been felt in in the russian market so in the in the currency market as you say there's been a a a big uh, fall in the the value of the ruble It, it fell as low as 118 rubles to the dollar at one point uh, yesterday, and and I was just looking at a chart of the ruble. I mean, this is quite remarkable that you know, uh, since 2014, when Russia annexed uh, Crimea, um, uh, the ruble has fallen from 40 rubles to the dollar to the current level of just over 100. So that is a massive devaluation in in the ruble. The response to that, as you say, from the Russian central bank uh, uh, was pretty dramatic. Yesterday, we saw the uh, interest rates rise from nine and a half percent to 20 percent. So, you know, clearly some very major concern within Russia about what's going on. And then just in terms of Russian assets, uh, you know, we saw a 60 percent fall in uh, spare bank, uh, Russia's biggest uh, Mm. lender, Gazprom, Luke Oil, big energy uh, companies fell by more than uh, 50%. And that has had a knock-on effect on not just uh, uh, investors within Russia, but externally, because what we're seeing at the moment is that many funds uh, invested in Russia um, are, uh, are, are, are suspending trading. And the reason they're doing that is because the Russian stock market didn't open yesterday. It is impossible to actually deal in, the, in, these, uh, in these stocks. So, uh, yeah, so within Russia, within Russian assets, um, you know, some, ma- some very major um, moves. But you raised um, uh, U.S. treasuries, uh, U.S. government bonds there. And I think that's very, very interesting because quite often when you get a big event like this, um, you know, what well, the first place I tend to look is what's going on in the U.S. treasury market because it's a big liquid market. Um, it's, a, it's a port in the storm. I mean, it, it's the ultimate safe haven. So you would expect when there is a geopolitical crisis that investors would rush towards the safety of of US government bonds. And were that to happen, we know that when people buy bonds, their yields fall. So you would expect the yield on US treasuries to have fallen quite sharply. And interestingly, it it didn't really. Uh, If you go back to the end of the the week prior to the invasion, uh, the yield on 10-year US treasuries was a fraction over 2%. On Thursday, it fell to 1.9%, so not a massive move. And in fact, by the end of the week, by Friday, it was back up to almost 2%. So really very little movement in in the yield on on US Treasuries. So I think what that is saying is that investors think that for now, 
you know, they are holding, they're reserving judgment. They're saying, you know, I think the, the, the narrative that prevailed before the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the return of inflation, the, the central bank response to that, the, the tightening cycle in monetary policy, that actually remains intact, that story, um, for, for now. I mean, obviously, it's a very fluid situation and, and it could change. Um, but, but worth saying that, you know, investors are certainly not panicking at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting that, because that, obviously you talk about US Treasury. I mean, the, the central bank and the monetary policy aspect of this, that, that means they're not a particularly attractive place to be at the moment, right? So there, there might be two competing factors there. Perhaps there's a rush to safety, but but it's not a particularly appetizing safe haven, is it? it because as as a long term prospect, we know that higher rates will will hurt those kind of fixed income assets. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good observation. Yeah, I mean clearly there there is a two way pull going on here uh, in, in the bond market, and maybe that's sort of coming out in the wash, which is why we're seeing, you know, at the headline level, not much change. Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe if we, we if we look on the brighter side and say that, that markets are not yet factoring in a big, big hit to global growth, although, of course, what you say is true, it is very fluid at the moment. There clearly are going to be some lasting effects. And one of those, Tom, you would think would be on the price of goods, something we've spoken about a lot anyway, separately from this situation in, in, in Ukraine. Um, and, and notably the prices of energy and food. What can we say there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a, you know, that is a key differentiator between this humanitarian tragedy and other humanitarian tragedies that are going on, you know, even, even as we speak. And, you know, without wishing to um, uh, underplay the, the suffering in Ukraine, and I absolutely don't want to do that, but, you know, there are millions of people on the brink of starvation in Afghanistan at the moment. No one is talking about that. Why are they not talking about that? Well, because it has very little direct impact on our lives. That is clearly not the case with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, both Russia, uh, well, Russia is a, is, a, is a huge exporter, as we know, of energy. Um, you know, anything between 25 and 40 percent of um, European um, uh, gas comes from directly uh, from Russia. Ukraine itself is a is a is a very big player uh, in the food markets, uh, an exporter mm. of wheat. I mean, it was traditionally the the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, uh, and indeed is you know the breadbasket of of, of Europe. Um, so yes, I think we we absolutely um, will it can expect that uh, that you know the, the shortages of energy and, and and food are going to be reflected in in higher prices, and that's building on a situation where we already had high inflation uh, in uh, in those um, uh, in in those uh, commodities. Uh, so that that's a that's a big challenge. Yeah, and and I, I was writing something yesterday about this uh, this sort of food and energy aspect and this inflation that we've already been seeing. Um, and, and and when it comes to something like wheat, which you've mentioned there, and and, and both Russia and Ukraine are big exporters of wheat. Um, and and for a country like the UK, who actually gets the vast majority of its wheat from uh, from our own growers, our own producers, but we also buy lots of things like fertilizer from regions like Ukraine, and and that of course is important in our production so you never truly escape it and and of course as all sorts of actions you know direct economic sanctions but also actions like airlines um refusing to to fly over the region 
um, we're going to have not being disrupted allowed to. supply yeah. chain. <laughs> Or not being allowed to, and 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 those supply chains risk being uh, upset as well. So there, there's a sort of wide, wide-reaching uh, effect on inflation, and we've had economists already predicting that their already elevated forecasts for inflation are going to have to go even higher. Some have been saying that it might hit eight percent here in the UK by April. It's um, mm. it's it's a it's adding to this picture, isn't it? And of course. You know, central banks have a role to play in this. What do we know, Tom, about how they're how they're going to process this? Because they've already been acting, haven't they? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, c- central banks are uh, are already they you know they were they were at, in the early stages of of a tightening cycle, and I think that you know to some extent this this may change the 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 analysis. Um, but the the evidence from the financial markets is that it's not happening yet. I mean, interestingly, a couple of weeks ago there was a lot of talk about um, the the Federal Reserve getting ahead of the curve by um, by by raising interest rates as soon as this month, March, um, by half a percentage point instead of the the, the quarter percentage point that, that you know that you might expect them at the beginning of a of a rate hiking cycle. I think that that's probably unlikely now. So I think that at the margin, you know, what's going on in, in Ukraine is probably going to um, curb the Fed's enthusiasm a little bit for, for raising uh, rates. But the expectation remains that uh, interest rates uh, will rise maybe six times in the in the US uh, this year. So I think that that process has not uh, has not been derailed by by what's going on. I think that narrative still remains, and that has investment implications. Um, but uh, it it is a fluid situation, and I think you know it it, it could well change um, depending on how things how things pan out in in Ukraine over the next few days. Indeed, indeed, Tom. And, and what is there to say about about how? Ordinary investors are reacting to this. I mean, we can see uh, internally here at Fidelity how fund buying was changing in the in the weeks running up to this situation. Um, you know, investors were already adapting to a, a higher inflation world, uh, a world where some of the the companies that have been doing much of the running were suddenly under pressure. What were they doing in in response to all that, and and, and will that continue given what's happened in Ukraine? Yes, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that a transition is underway um, and it remains to be seen, you know, how sort of long term and uh, sort of secular, if you like, this this uh, shift uh, is. But we were definitely seeing a movement away from sort of growth oriented technology type stocks towards the more sort of uh, physical um, uh, commodities um uh, that you know quite obviously are 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 rising in price as a, as a consequence of, of of what's happening. So you know we've seen you know w- within our uh, on our platform in terms of fund sales, um, uh, funds related to to energy, uh, natural resources uh, are attracting a lot of interest uh, from investors, and 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 that's perhaps perhaps not not surprising um and i think that you know part of that is this move towards a, a higher inflation world i mean commodities have tended historically to to uh to to be a hedge against uh rising prices and um uh and i think that 
but it's a complex it's a complex equation for for investors because on the one hand you know you would think that you know rising inflation rising interest rates people would move towards more cyclical um value focused uh, investments but if what happens is that we get both rising inflation and a slowing in growth this sort of stagflationary um uh, environment uh, then those those more cyclical uh, shares which do well in a in a in a growing economy are maybe not going to do so well so i think for for me the the message from this is very clear that it's there's so much uncertainty at the moment the best thing that people can do is to be extremely well diversified not just in terms of different asset classes and we've talked about bonds and and shares uh not just in terms of uh, geographies uh, i mean clearly that makes sense when when the focus of this crisis is in Europe, then as an investor, you have the opportunity to diversify your risk by investing in other areas of the world as well, but also in terms of investment styles. So that growth and value uh, question remains unresolved. And so I think a balance in all of those areas uh, makes a lot of sense for investors. Yeah, indeed. And finally here, I mean, you know, you mentioned there about diversification, but um, what else is there to say about the sensible response from long term investors? You know, clearly there's going to be a lot of fear out there. What we've what we've seen is very alarming. You fear it's not going to uh, end uh, for some time, but panic and and sort of rushing for the exit that that rarely works, does it as, a, as an investment strategy in the long term? No, it, it doesn't, and there's, and I think there's absolutely no no need for it because yes, clearly, and we've we've discussed some of the the economic implications uh, of this, um, but you know this is a this is a, a a European crisis. It does have global ramifications in terms of um, you know energy and and, and food etc. That we, which we've discussed, um, but. You know, look at the headline levels. Look at look at what's happening in the bond market. That tells you what what you know. Um, you know hard-hearted, callous investors are thinking in aggregate around the world, and you know there is no panic, and absolutely there's no need for people uh, to 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 panic. Okay. Okay. Well, Tom, let's leave it there for now. I've no doubt we're going to return to this again and again, but um, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ed. You've been listening to the Money Talk podcast. Check fidelity.co.uk for daily written updates and articles on these and other topics from across Fidelity in the UK. And subscribe via iTunes to get the podcast downloaded direct to your devices every week. Please be aware that the value of investments and the income you get from them can go down as well as up so you may not get back what you invest. This information doesn't constitute investment advice and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. Eligibility to invest in an ISA or a pension and the value of tax savings depends on personal circumstances and all tax rules may change. You will not normally be able to access money held in a pension until the age of 55. Reference to specific securities or funds should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities or funds and is included for the purpose of illustration only. Fidelity Personal Investing does not give personal recommendations. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorised financial advisor.